0: Welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Exodus in a series I've entitled Freed to Worship. Exodus describes many of the miraculous things God did to bring his chosen people out of bondage in Egypt and then to the Promised Land. Along the way, he revealed himself to the Israelites and taught them how to worship him. As New Testament believers, we don't follow the same pattern of worship as God instructed the Jews to worship him, but through their system, we learn a great deal about the God we worship. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Exodus, and let's explore what it means to be freed to worship. So let's go ahead and get started. We'll get started with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come, thanking you for this gathering, this time, and we pray for your blessing on it as we get into the study of the book of Exodus. And Lord, um, uh, you've set us free so that we are free to worship you, Lord. So we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive what your spirit would say to us today. We praise you and love you and lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty, so, so far in our study of Exodus, a quick little recap um, the Israelites, the Hebrews, will hear me use those terms interchangeably, Israelites, Hebrews, same people, are in Egypt where they have spent the last 400 years, and they have grown to be a great nation, millions strong. Then a pharaoh rises to power who doesn't remember what Joseph did for the people of Egypt, and he becomes threatened by their, their population, there's a lot of them. And so he enslaves them, and, but they keep growing. And so then he yeah. you know, he comes up with the idea, he'll kill all the baby boys that are born to the Hebrews. And, and then it, the account moves on to Moses being born. And his parents hide him for a period of time, but eventually they have to do something. So they put him in a reed basket and put him in the river. And then providentially, this is God working, he arranges, God arranges for the, the daughter of Pharaoh to find Moses. And I believe it also is an act of his providence that he moved in her that caused her to want to raise this child as her own. You know, if you think about the culture they were in and all that was going on, it's just an odd thing she would decide to raise this baby as her own, but she does. So that's more of God's work. And then it fast forward very quickly. We're going to see another fast forward in our text today. About 37 years. Moses is roughly 40 and he decides to go out and see how the Israelites are doing and while he's out there he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite slave and Moses kills the Egyptian, hides the body, thinks he gets away with the perfect crime. Not quite. The next day he goes out and sees two Hebrew men fighting and he tries to break it up. So we'll pick it up in verse 14 where we left off last time. Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian so Moses feared and said surely this thing is no not quite so secret he <coughs> excuse me senses that he, uh, he he might be in trouble and he's right verse 15 when pharaoh heard of this matter he sought to kill Moses but Moses fled from the place of pharaoh, the face of pharaoh And he dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So Moses runs for his life. And um, hold on. Spoke too soon. Hoping I can get this to work. There we go. And so he's running for his life, and um, he ends up in Midian. Now, Midian is a, is both the name of a, pers- a person and a people group. And they descended, you know, these people that descended from Midian. After Sarah died, Abraham remarried, and he married a woman named Keturah, And she had a number, they had a number of children, one of, which was Midian and um, after he was uh, grown up a little bit, uh, uh, Abraham sent all of his other sons, the ones that weren't Isaac he sent them away into other places and Midian um, ends up um, uh, near the dead the, the Red Sea Dead Sea somewhere out, out in that area out there so they're diff- they're distant relatives of Moses and, and here it's interesting how if you look at at Moses' life in this in this particular chapter how much his life resembles Jacob's life there's a lot of similarity that goes on here you know Jacob ran for his life um, at one point uh, because you know not not that he had killed somebody but somebody was thinking about killing him his brother was thinking about killing him and he ends up at a well near some of his relatives and um, so, similar story going on there. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. So, again, you know, we remember the account, Jacob also did a similar thing um, for. Um, had a this similar kind of an account with hit with a woman at a well, his future wife. And so, um, so there's a similarity. They both meet their future brides because one of the daughters of, of, um, Bethuel, or what do they refer to him as here? Um, uh, do they name him here? No. Uh, Royal. Yeah. They, he ends up having two names. I'll touch on that a little bit later on, but one of his daughters ends up being, um, uh, Moses's wife, so Moses stands up to these bullies, and uh, delivers the women from them. It's interesting, as, as you look at at Moses, God had put into Moses' heart the the heart of a deliverer. That he right from from early parts of his life, you know whether whether it's these these bullies at the well or the Egyptian oppressors, God had already done that in him, and that that's. That's something that God does in, in all of us is that he creates within us a heart that leans toward a particular, has a bent toward a particular thing. And, you know, long before I was a pastor teacher, even before I was a Christian, Kelly could see in me that, that, that there, I had this, this desire to help people figure things out. And and it wasn't something I was trying to do. It was just kind of happened in my life. She had always thought that I should have been a teacher or something like that. Well, she was right. And she did become one. But you know, she saw that in me long before God even saved me, let alone called me into the ministry. You know, even as, as we pause and look back on our lives, we can often see. God's fingerprints all over our our life. Um, It's hard to see it in the moment. It's hard to see it in the right now, but often as we look back over our life and we can sometimes trace the events, we can see God working. And he does that with all of us. And we're just not always aware of it. We're not always as responsive to it as we should be. So whatever God is doing in your life right now, the, the reality is it's getting you ready for something else. So whatever he's doing now is getting us ready for the next thing. And, and the interesting thing about that is we don't always see the connection between the this thing and the that thing. That, that sometimes, in of fact, that connection is almost impossible to see until we get to the next thing and we can see how, how God would do that. Uh, one story I tell is that when I, the, my first ministry position as a pastor was over a children's ministry, which was not anything remotely like what I, what I thought I was gonna be doing in the ministry. I thought I was gonna be a teacher. I thought I was gonna be a shepherd. I thought I was gonna do you know, counseling and those sorts of things. Not watching a bunch of snotty brats. That was not in my, that was not in my plan. And, uh, and, and God used it to change my heart about ministering to children. And so at the time, I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to have to figure out how to get through this. But God had a plan to teach me um, something that I, I didn't even know I needed until, until he showed it to me. So God is doing something in you. You need to let it happen and be patient with it. So the girls um, that um, Moses you know, um, helps, they go and tell their dad what happened. Pick it up in verse 18. And it says this. Now, when they... Came to Ruel, their father. He said, How is it that you have come so soon today? Meaning that this was probably a regular occurrence. The girls would try to water their flocks, and the bullies would come and drive them away. Verse 19 And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man. And he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So we have, Moses doesn't seem to have a plan when he left Egypt, We we can understand that. It wasn't something he thought out, you know, all of a sudden he's in trouble. So he just runs for his life. And so he's sitting here, he ends up by this well and and you know, without a plan that God did have a plan and, it, it, and Moses decides that Midian, Midian was as good a place as any to settle down and and we can imagine that, that Moses probably would have stayed there for the rest of his life he would have raised his family there and that's the way it would have been he wouldn't have given Egypt another thought um, and he would have just lived out his life but God had a different plan and and as we look at this, we're going to see that happens regularly. And then we get another fast forward here uh, between verses 22 and 23. About 40 years pass in, in between these two verses. So we'll pick it up in, in, in verse 23 in a second. Um, it's been 40 years that Moses has been living apart from his family and from the, the people of Israel from the Hebrews. He went from living in a palace to being a fugitive, being being a, he'll ultimately be a shepherd um, in, on in the backside of the wilderness, down at the, the tip of Sinai is where most people believe this all took place. He went from being a prince to being a shepherd. After 40 years he settled down into this lifestyle. But things in Egypt are not going that well verse 23 now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died this is the one that 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 was causing all the trouble in for the Hebrews then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage 80 years have passed since Pharaoh started persecuting people of israel so it's 80 years have have gone on of of them you know suffering under this bondage we don't know how long before the account um before moses birth took place how long before that it was happening but at least 80 years of it and the king who sought to kill moses is now dead but the slavery the bondage the oppression that the people of israel had been enduring continued so the hebrews are still in oppression and so at least 80 years they've been living under these taskmasters, and their burdens just keep getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And so the children of Israel groan because of this bondage, this slavery. Now it's not necessarily an audible groan, but it might have been. I'm sure there was some whining, complaining, and you know, and and all of that. But it's more of this this inward groan that words just cannot cannot express and i i don't know if anybody that, that if there isn't somebody in, in everybody that has some sense of what that's like there are just times where the the burden is so heavy so intense that you just don't have words to express what you're feeling but but it's hard you know if we can pray in those times we often don't know what words to pray And it's in those moments where the Spirit prays for us. In Romans 8, 26, it says this, "'Likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, "'for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, "'but the Spirit makes intercession for us "'with the groanings which cannot be uttered.'" It always encourages me to know that when I'm struggling to pray, And there are times where it's just like, I don't even know how to pray about this. I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm feeling. I'm not sure how to think about this. It just feels hard. I'm just so thankful that the Holy Spirit is inside of me praying for me, praying with me. And, you know, when the Holy Spirit prays, what kind of prayers does he pray? Really good ones. Because he is God. He he knows exactly what to say. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need to pray, right? We still need to pray because you know God wants us to make that connection. He, he wants us to, to humble our heart before him and to seek him and to know him. And one of the ways we get to know God is by praying. Because it's something that happens when we when we sincerely open our heart to God and we sincerely reach out to God and we desire to commune and fellowship with him and talk to him, something happens inside of us. It, there is a spiritual connection made and it does something to us. So here we have the children of Israel. They're groaning. And it says they cried out. Now now we may not have all the words that we need, but we need to express the words that we have. This is really important, that when we come to those times we're not sure how to pray, we still need to pray. We need to use whatever words we have and just and just lift them up to God. And I'm so thankful that when I take I throw my prayers up to God as weak and Pathetic as they might be, the Holy Spirit grabs those things and He makes them right and He makes them good. And, and here's the beautiful thing. If we will do that, God will respond. And and, and, and we, we never have to question that. He will respond to our prayers. Now, He may not do it right away. How long had the Hebrews been praying? Eighty years. 80, yeah, you can talk, it's okay, you can talk. 80 years that they had been praying. And it's been a long time. You know, generations have passed of this. God hears our prayers, but he doesn't always answer them when we want or how we want. But he always answers them. Verse 24. So God heard their groaning. God heard their groaning. Now, do you think they waited 80 years to start praying? Probably not. As soon as things started getting hard, they remembered their God, and they may not have been worshiping him the way they should or whatever, but they've been crying out to him. Why did God wait 80 years to respond why did God wait 80 years for all of this to happen and and, you know before you suggest well they had to get Moses ready well God could have gotten Moses ready before the groaning was needed so we can't use that there has to be a reason but we may not know what it is we need to admit that there are times where we just don't get what God's doing We don't understand what he's doing. We don't understand why he's doing it the way, we don't understand why he's waiting. We just have to be okay with the fact that sometimes God doesn't do it the way we think he should. And he talks about that in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The reality is that God doesn't think like we do. He knows things that we don't know. He acts differently than we do. But all of them, you know, when we we think about that, we might think, well, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. God is right. God is true. God is love. God is perfect. God is holy. We've got to remember all those things. So if he doesn't do it the way we think we do it, it's not him that's wrong. Right? It's not, it's not God who's, you know, waiting too long. God is never, ever late. I don't know about you, but you know when, when I want to be rescued when something is going wrong? Right now. The moment I sense discomfort or inconvenience or pain and suffering, I want to be rescued right now. The last thing I want to hear, oh, God might wait 80 years before he does something. I don't think I've got that much time, God. One of the ways that we prove we trust God is we don't put him on a delivery schedule. We say, God, you know what's going on in my life. You know that I hate it. You know that I'm miserable. You know that I don't like this. And I'd like you to fix it. Now, I'd like you to fix it right now. But if you don't, not my will be done But your will be done. And we are in a spoiled, spoiled culture. I have ordered things from Amazon and gotten them in the same day. Same day. That has blown my mind more than once. God is not Amazon Prime. He's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to do it when he's going to do it. He's going to how he's going to do it. But when he does it it's right, it's perfect. Yeah, And we need to be, we need to, we need to be, we need to get ourselves to that place where we, we can say to God, if it's your will for me to stay in this, whatever it is, then, then give me the faith so that I don't need an explanation. Give me the faith to trust you. Give me the faith to wait for you. Give me the strength to stand one more day in the midst of it. In 2 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 3 it says this, now therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard From me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If we are a child of God, he hears our cries. He hears our groanings. He hears our prayers. He hears every single one of them. And he will do something about it and we just have to trust him. His timing is perfect, but he doesn't explain often when he's gonna do what he's going to do, but he is going to do it. Continuing on in verse 24, it says this, so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. If you think about it, it's kind of an odd thing to read that God remembered something because it implies that maybe he forgot about it. It slipped his mind, you know, that you know, it, was, it was out of mind. You know, I, you, know, you know, all of us and, you know, you start getting up around my age, you know, somebody will tell you, I tell people on Sunday morning all the time, if they tell me something they want me to remember something, I tell them the chance of me remembering on a Sunday morning are very close to zero. If, you're gonna, if you want me to remember it, you need to send it to me, text me, email me, write a note, do something. But, you know, there's just too much stuff floating around in there for me to remember it. I, I, I want to, I just can't. I don't. But does God forget things? Can anything ever go out of his mind? I don't think so. God is omniscient. That means he's, he knows everything about everything when always in Hebrews it says this Hebrews 11:13 there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account god knows everything he knows our secret thoughts he knows our dreams our wishes our hopes our mistakes our sins our whatever he knows it all so god didn't forget his covenant with abraham isaac and jacob and and the covenant that we're referring to here is the covenant of the land the promised land and all that's wrapped up and all that's included with that in essence he's saying what he's saying here is that god determined when he says that he remembered that god had determined that it was time to do what he promised to do and um, there's a similar account in in um, genesis 6 where God remembered Noah and his family. He didn't forget about them while they're floating; they're bobbing around, and you know, on the ark out in the ocean. He just decided, okay, now it's time. And when when God remembers, the idea is that he he again it, the the our, our language I think fails to articulate how God does these things, but he chose at that moment it's time to do something about it. So he's gonna bring his children, the children of Israel, into the land of Canaan. Verse 25, and God looked upon the children of Israel. Looked upon the children of Israel. So the idea here is that he's going to focus his attention on them and ultimately to bless them. In Psalm 34, verse 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry so in essence what God's saying is that God is getting ready to do something and he's getting ready to do what he already said he was going to do and we're going to look at it a little bit later that he had told them hundreds of years before that he was going to do this verse 25 continuing and God acknowledged them um, Now that's fascinating um, because, he, because the idea there the, the image that's painted with that is that he is going to enter into the experience of what they're doing so he's he is kind of connecting himself to this and, and so God is going to come down and visit them in their suffering uh, one of the elements of the incarnation of Christ is that Jesus came down to experience life as a human in Hebrews 4 15 it says this for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin he was he was like us he had the same body he had the same you know physical things that we do and 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 he knows what we feel because he has felt those those same things himself so he's he entered into the human experience so the idea here is that god is going to enter in to the experience of the Hebrews there. So, God heard, God remembered, God looked, God acknowledged the suffering of his people, and now he is preparing to do something about it. So, anytime God remembers, anytime God acknowledges, it seems that he is getting ready to do something for them. We're going to move on to chapter um, 3, and we're going to, we see God preparing a, the man, a man, the man, that's going to be a vehicle through which he delivers God's people from the bondage of slavery. The Bible is filled with examples of people that God uses to accomplish his will. And, and he doesn't need us, he doesn't need us. He is fully capable of doing anything he wants, anytime he wants but he chooses to use us. And that is, that is one of those things that, that ought to just fill our minds with awe, that, that God who is infinite, God who is holy, God who is mighty, chooses to involve his creation in his work, in the work of redemption, in the work of, of you know, proclaiming the gospel to the world. Moses is about... To have an encounter with the living God, I, I would love to have one of those encounters. To have that encounter where you know that you are literally in God's presence. Now, now we right now we experience that by faith. By faith, I know that God is here. By faith, I know that I am indwelt with the Holy Spirit. I've there's been other ways of knowing that as well but to have this this experience like Moses about to have we're going to talk about the burning bush here in a moment to have that experience that's pretty radical where you can you know and, and not only do you know because you're hearing the voice of God God is talking to you from the burning bush that's pretty radical usually when we do have an encounter with God it's when we need him you know that's when we Cry out to him. That's when we humble ourselves before him. But we can learn a lot from Moses' encounter with God here. So let's pick up chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, um, there we go. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock back to, to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So we're going we're gonna to look at a, a number of things. There's a few things that we learn from this. There's, there's things that we learn about encountering God. And the first one is that God appears in the ordinary. Moses is going about his life, doing what he's been doing probably for decades. He's been tending the sheep of his father-in-law. This is another day at the office for Moses. And when he woke up that morning he probably didn't think that he was going to have some radical experience with God, this encounter with the living God. More likely, he was thinking about, you know, okay, what am I going to have to do with the sheep? You know, that one that one that always gives me trouble. I'm going to have to give it a good smack. I'm going to have to blah, blah, blah. He's probably thinking through the whole process of where he's going to go, where he's, you know, all this stuff he's, he's thinking about. And God is going to, interrupt Moses' day and, and with an experience that will radically transform his life Moses will never be the same after this after this encounter. Moses wasn't doing something spiritual he was just doing life he was just going through his daily thing and and the the message there for us is we don't need to be on a mountaintop to have a radical encounter with the living God he can meet us wherever we are and, 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 and he might meet us wherever we are he can show up at any time in any place and the lesson is I think for us for us, is because we, we might look at an account like this and say I want that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after that I'm going to go find that You know that experience, and yeah, we've had people to do that. They'll they'll try to they'll try to, and there are whole churches that are built around the idea of of developing an experience, you know, you know, bringing their people to an experience. Well, that doesn't seem to be the way God usually does it. He shows up when He wants to, where He wants to, when He wants to, to whom He wants to. And so the the message to me is be faithful right where you are, and just just seek him as you would through your everyday things through your you know your your bible reading and your prayer and your service and all the different things that you might be doing your work your your play you know you know the you know through you know working in your garden whatever it is you're doing he could show up and and we just need to be, be faithful to those things with with a heart of desire desiring to have an encounter with god um, expecting that that he might, you know that you know that you know Moses probably didn't think much of himself after forty years on the backside of the wilderness. You know, tending his father-in-law's sheep, he probably kind of lost, you know that you know that that princely, you know, vision of life in the world, and so he probably didn't think. Well, we're going to see in a little bit. He didn't think that much of himself, and so and so you know just be who you are, where you are, and expect God could show up at any moment. And, and he could show up for you. Maybe not with a burning bush, but there could be something. So there's a few things I want to draw your attention to in this. First, Moses is tending the flock of Jethro. And I kind of touched on it. You know, after 40 years, Moses is still working for his father-in-law. So he's 80 years old at this point. He's an old dude and, and one of the things that God did in that 40 years was teach Moses humility that the Bible does go on to say and I'm, I'm going to come to it in a little bit later that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. The Bible record says that about Moses the second thing I want you to see in this is that the name of his father-in-law. Here it's 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 mentioned Jethro, and in the previously it was Ruel. And so in my study, I couldn't really find what was going on there. And so it could be a number of different things. One could be a family name. The other could be a title, lots of different things. Uh, but who knows? Don't know. Um, Jethro is going to show up a little bit later on. Uh, so we're just going to leave it at that. And so, so turn to Exodus chapter 24, though. Exodus 24, just a few pages to your right. That's correct, right? Exodus 24. I had to think to myself what actually direction I was going. The third thing I want you to, to notice is the location of this event. And it says Horeb, the mountain of God. So another place was also called the mountain of God or or. This mountain of God is referred to in another place here in Exodus chapter 24, starting in verse 13. So Moses arose with assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai... And the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So you can go back to Exodus 3 now. So Horeb and Mount Sinai are believed to be the same place. The exact location of them is not not clear. Though the most common belief is it's down near the tip of the uh, Sinai Peninsula. So, um, uh, David's got the map there. It's got that little that little point down there on the end. So, it's right there. That's right, right where his finger is. If you're not watching this online, you can't see where he's pointing. I was going to try to get a map, but it didn't work out. So, look it up in your Bible or your Bible app. You'll be able to find it. So So, even in this, we see the providence of God. Moses didn't stumble on the place where god was god arranged everything to bring him to that place god had determined in advance that this was going to be the place where his people encountered him and you know it will be the place where he meets where this burning bush is and then later it's going to be where moses goes and hangs out with god on a number of occasions and gets things like the ten commandments and the design for the the tabernacle and all those things is going to happen right in this place so 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 God brought him here, and, and, and God does the same thing with us. God is working out the circumstances of our lives. You know, this is what we refer to the providence of God, that God arranges the universe according to his will. And so he arranges the events, he arranges the people, he arranges the weather, he arranges everything. So that things happen the way he wants them to, that's the providence of God. And so when things happen, you know, you know, when we look at them and say, "Well, well, that was just random," that was just coincidence. That was my favorite thing to tell Kelly when I was a lost heathen, pagan, loser. Um, That that oh, that's just coincidence. No, it wasn't coincidence. It was God's providence, or it was a miracle, or whatever else it was back then. And so we need to understand that that God is always working, and 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 that that when things happen, we need to look for God's fingerprints on them. Now we don't we don't attribute evil to God, but God can even in that His providence can be seen as He works out um, different things. So, God appears in the ordinary, and but that doesn't mean He always that we always notice God in the ordinary, right? God can show up on the ordinary, but that doesn't mean we always notice it. You know, we can go about our thing and God's, you know, 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 sets that little bush on the fire over here to the side and and we might might glance at it and not really notice it. Verse two, pick it up. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. The next thing we learn about having an encounter with God. Oops. Uh-oh. I think I skipped something. There we go. I did skip something. Sorry. Um God needs to get our attention. So Moses is doing his thing. He's tending the sheep. And he's walking along, looks over. Hey, there's a bush burning over there. And, and there's a chance that if he had done that, it probably would have said, you know, you know that if it on a normal situation, you might have looked at it and said, well, that's interesting. I wonder how it caught fire. And then moved on. But as he looked at it, he said, wait a minute. It's burning but it's not being consumed that was unusual a burning bush okay that would be interesting but a burning bush that isn't being consumed okay now I need to pay attention to that and that's what he does that's strange you know otherwise it'd just be a curiosity so when God wants to get our attention he might do something in a way that makes us certain that it's him and that's often the way that he does. He'll do something and say, okay, that can only be God. You know, a lot of times we give God credit. We give, we, we attribute these kinds of things. You know, sometimes, you know, you know my, I dropped my toast and it landed face up. Oh, God, you're so awesome. You showed up in my toast. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe that's just the way it landed. But, hey, if you want to see God in that, Go for it. Just don't create an altar around it and do that weird stuff. Before before we we move on to Moses' response, there's a a couple of things in verse 2 I want to look at. First, it says, it refers to the appearance of the angel of the Lord. And so as you look at that, I want you to notice something about the way that it's written. And and for those of you in my Tuesday morning Bible study, you know that there, the one thing that I'm going to draw your attention to is the A in angel. It's capitalized, and so that says something to us. And what it says to us is that the the the, the translators slash interpreters saw this as a divine appearance. Now. The the phrase "angel of the Lord" appears sixty some odd times in the Old Testament, Um, and or yeah, in the Bible, Um, all of the ones, almost all of the ones in the Old Testament, are written this way in the capital A, and of the Lord, and they refer to deity. You never see it in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you see an angel of the Lord um, or something like that. Never is it referred to as deity. And so the question we get to, okay, if this is one of the persons of the deity, which one is it? Well, if we read it in context, it makes it pretty clear to us it is God. Um, it is God the Father appearing. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a physical manifestation, a visible manifita- manifestation of god other places we see where it is not it 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 may not be clear in other places where we sense we can can we refer to it as a christophany so this would this would be a theophany a visible manifestation of god but if you remember the account in joshua where joshua is on the plains of jericho and um and this man appears to him and, um, and he falls down on his face before him and the angel of the Lord appears to him and we see that as a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And so context is going to help us to answer those questions and this one it's pretty clear because in a, in a verse or two it's going to say, and then God said. And so it is, it is, um, it is an appearance of God. Um, you can have a different opinion on that. That's okay with me. Just don't share it with me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, um, you know, and we, we know this, we believe it's God. In verse 4, it says, God called Moses from the bush. So we see this as a, as a theophany. Um, we see also later um, the theophany in the pillar of cloud. As the Israelites are being led through the, wil- through the wilderness for 40 years, the pillar of cloud is also a theophany god was in that cloud and several others like i said there's there are many of them you do a, a, a search a phrase search of angel of the lord and you'll find many of these accounts um, there there's no evidence that this is a christophany and so um, if somebody believes that okay you know god is god i'm okay um, and and it doesn't change our doctrine really um, if you want to believe it's it's Christ here, it just doesn't appear to that that's the case. The second thing about the burning bush is, is it says some things about God. One, it reveals God's power over creation. You know, is it a big deal to set a bush on fire? No, even we could do that. But is it a big deal to put it to set a bush on fire and it not being consumed while it's burning? Okay, that's a big deal. You know, that, that is his, his creative power. While he's got fire, he's creating fire, and he's allowing this fire to burn, but it's not burning the bush. It's not it's not consuming the bush as it normally would. And the the burning bush also speaks to us of the eternal nature of God and of his self-sufficiency. It's a, so it says a bunch of stuff. It pictures a lot of stuff. You know, everything that God does in the world, you know, and this is one of those weird concepts that, not weird, but it's, it's a little bit more difficult to understand. When we do something, anything, it's consuming something, you know, just living. We are consuming something. We are being consumed. The longer we live, the more consumed we feel, right? You know, it's just like, it's like we're being eaten up, eaten up. And with God, it, it, he, he is never consumed. And so no matter what He does, no matter how much energy expends, you know, for us as humans, you know, we, we do things, we expend energy, and we have to refuel to get more energy to keep doing more things. <clears throat> God doesn't do that. He, doesn't, he, he, he can burn forever. He can go on forever. He is, He does, He did, has, and He will, and He's never consumed. It, he never changes. He never lessens. He never gets bigger. So he provides the fire for the bush, he provides whatever it means to keep the bush from burning up and yet nothing is consumed. So Moses can't help but be drawn to the scene, right? I mean, we would all do that. If we saw a bush burning and it wasn't burning up, we would all be drawn to it. Stephen in the New Testament relates to this account yeah. to the religious leaders of his time. And he says this in oh, wait a minute. Did I skip something? Huh. I think I think my some of my slides are out of order. Well, that is just fine. Anyways, Stephen said, When Moses saw it, speaking of this account, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him. So what what is important to us is that God showed Moses who he was before he told Moses who he was. So he revealed himself, and he still hasn't identified himself. He hasn't told Moses who he is. So God's going to get our attention whatever way he needs to, and he's going to do it in whatever he has to to get our attention. You know, know, for a rare few, it is when God blesses them in some radical way that we, that we have one of these encounters with God. You know, that, that, you know, for most, we experience God in the storm, in the tribulation, um, in our times of suffering. You know, the, the, the reality is, is that we're more sensitive, we're more open, we're more aware, our eyes are more open when life is hard, and, and we're seeking him shouldn't be that way, but that's often the way that it is. Often it takes sinking in the storm to get us to the point that we're seeing God who is trying to get our attention. So Moses is about to have this radical encounter with the living God, and his life will be changed forever. And, and not just his life, but the life of his people, the Israelites too. R. Kent Hughes said this, a person never knows when his life might be changed forever by an encounter with the living God. I think this is one of the things that some people are afraid of. Some people are afraid God might change my life. And so they're afraid that if I, if I seek him, if I chase after him, if I, if I get saved, people, you know, people have stopped you know decided I don't want to get saved because I don't want God to change my life. But when he does, it's always for the better. It may not always be easy, but it's always for the better. I don't, I don't, yeah, for me, this is exciting. The idea that God could show up right now and do something that changes my life forever. That, that, you know, he could say, you know, he could show up. He could set that chair on fire over there and say, okay, Rick, I got, you know, I got I want you to set my people free, whatever that means, whatever his thing is. I want you to do that now. Okay, let's go do that. Here's the thing. We should watch for that, but we shouldn't wait for it. We should watch for God to show up someplace. Look for him trying to get our attention him doing something around us he's trying to get our attention but we shouldn't sit around waiting for it we ought to stay busy with whatever god has given us until he gets our attention until he throws a burning bush in our path whatever it might be let's go to verse four verse four so when the lord saw that he turned aside moses turned aside to look god called to him from the midst of the bush and said Moses Moses and he said here I am the third thing we need to know about an encounter with God is that God will present himself once he has our attention that makes sense right you know if if God's trying to get our attention but we're not paying attention what might God do he might just keep on going if we want to if we want if we want God to present himself to us, we need to pay attention, and that means for us you know we need to remind ourselves that we can't get overly consumed with the things of the world you know jesus said you know don't don't love this world, you love this world um it it you know it can divide our attention so much that we might miss an opportunity to have a radical encounter with the living God. And I, gosh, I think, I think, what could be worse than that? You know, God shows up and we're too busy doing whatever we're doing, you know, with bubble burst or whatever whatever the, the game is that's going on. And, you know, and we, and, we, and we miss, you know, okay, hold on, hold on, God. I'm on level 99. I'm almost to 100. Hold on. I know it's none of you. As long as there's anything in our life that is clamoring for our attention and we're giving it that attention, we're going to be less likely to have a radical encounter with God. That doesn't mean we have to isolate ourselves from everything. We should always have this, this, this sense and this kind, of this kind of this openness to hearing God speak even in the midst of those things. Yeah, and, and honestly, too often we're hindering the Spirit of God from ministering to us because we're so distracted by other things. I like the fact that God called Moses by name. This points to the reality God is a personal God. He didn't say, hey, 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 you with the sheep. He was Moses' God. He's our God. God knows you. God knows your name. He is thinking about you. In Psalm 40, verse 16, it says, Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified, but I am poor and needy. Yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. The Lord thinks of you. I love that. So Moses hears this voice. And, and though at this point he doesn't know who he's talking to, he, he responds. You imagine that. You're out there on the backside of the wilderness, minding your own business, taking care of the sheep, all of a sudden, you see this bush on fire, and out of the bush comes a voice. Okay, you know, we have, we have the, the benefit of having read the Bible. And so we know these kinds of things happen. Moses doesn't know that. I'm wondering, what is he thinking at this moment? What, what, would, what would be going through his mind as, okay, this is, this is just weird. and he sees this bush, hears this voice calling him by name. Okay, that would add a little, another level of weirdness to it. I I, I can only imagine he might be a little freaked out by that. But Moses responds, saying, here I am, which is basically saying, I'm listening. Verse 5. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. So this mysterious voice still hasn't identified himself, but gives Moses two instructions and a declaration. So the instructions, do not draw near and take off your sandals. The declaration, this is holy ground. We'll start with the declaration, and then we'll go back to the instructions. The Lord says, where the burning bush was, was holy ground. Now, this is the first reference to God's holiness in the Bible. Now, that was interesting. The word holy literally means set apart or or separated. Philip Ryken says this, In the case of God, holiness means that he is set apart from everything he has made. God is not like anything that he made. Nothing that is in the created realm is like God. He is separate from all of it. He is more perfect than all of his creation. There's an immense gap. I think this is one of the ways that that we grow in our understanding of God, is we grow in our understanding of just how far over us how far beyond us he actually is that when we're young in our faith okay god is god you know we don't have this we don't have the the, uh, the vision or the understanding of the immensity of god but as we grow in our faith we we grow uh, he is so much further beyond us and and we are so much smaller than we thought we were and and this gap just grows and grows and grows and grows and I believe that that is where grace operates, in that area between what we believe about God and what we know about ourselves. That's where grace operates. And the gap is symbolized here, this gap between the holy God and, and fallen man. He says, do not draw near this place. That there's, there, there's, there's we, can't, we can't go in that place. This was later symbolized in the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was created, it was created in two parts there was the holy place and the holy of holies or the most holy place and it was dangerous to approach even the tabernacle but even more so the holy of holies you know the account if you remember the account of the death of Uzziah when at a point when the ark of the covenant had been captured by the Philistines and there was a, this process to bring it back And as they were bringing it back, the oxen stumbled. Uzziah reached out to steady the ark, put his hand upon the ark, and God struck him dead, just like that. He got too close to the holiness of God. And and it was one of those weird accounts that we'll get to it someday when we get to wherever that was. Am I supposed to know those things off, off the top of my head? No, I can look them up. So God tells Moses, keep a safe distance. You need, there, there needs to be distance between us. I'm holy, you're not. And the next instruction was to, was to take off his sandals. Now, you know, that that's doesn't really make a lot of sense to us as, as modern um, Western people. But it, it shows us two basic things. First, it shows respect or reverence and subservience. And so there's this re- reality that by taking off the sandals, you are you are humbling yourself before whoever it is before, and so it's it's a sign of humility before a superior. Um, the second is and, and more important is it symbolizes and acknowledges the holiness of God. You know symbolically, you know the shoe picked up all the you know the dirt and the sheep dung and whatever else that you know you're you're traipsing through you know in your shepherd thing and so and that's a picture of sin and so by taking off the sandals he is he is humbling himself before god and 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 in a way separating himself from his sin and so the picture there for us is of 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 the of the of confession and repentance Now, it's not stated whether or not Moses complied, but we can make an assumption here, right? That he actually did what God told him to do. And I don't imagine that he wasted any time doing it either. Um, Then God identifies himself in verse 6. What is wrong with my slides? Okay, I am all over the place here. Um, Verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. I think it's important to comment on the fact that God asked Moses to obey before he identified him. He said, take off your sandals and do not draw near and take off your sandals before he identified himself. And, and I wonder if there are times in our own lives where God is waiting for us to obey him so that he could reveal himself to us. That he has something he wants to show us. He has something he wants to do in us, but he's not going to tell us about it until we've obeyed him in the last thing he told us to do. And so there's times where I think, you know what, I, I need to spend time with God and say, God, is there any area in my life where I'm not obeying you, where I'm, I'm resisting you, where I'm not, I'm not reverencing you, I'm, I'm not humbling myself before you, wherever it might be, is there something standing in the way between you and what you want to do with me? Yeah, It's, it's kind of, you know, in this I see, I, my sense is that, that God is saying, obey me, then you will meet me. If you obey me, then you will meet me. You'll meet with me. And too many people say, you know what, God, you need to show up, and then I'll obey you. That's not the way God works. God says, you obey me, then I'll show up. Obey first. So God identifies himself in a very personal way. First, he says, I am the God of your father. So, you know, he's saying he's the God of Amram, which implies that Amram was still a God worshiper, even though he's out in Egypt, and I don't know if he was still alive at this point. But he was the God of his father. And then he also identifies himself with uh, Moses' ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what isn't obvious in this is that all of these are in the present tense. That I am the God, I am the God of your of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and that they're all in the present tense. And Jesus used this verse to prove the resurrection. In Matthew 22:31 he said this. But concerning this, let me see if I actually got this one on here. Oh, there it is. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, "I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob." God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so he's proving the resurrection. There is a resurrection, he says. And the fact that God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, in the present tense, that's what he's alluding to. He's alluding to the reality that there is a resurrection. Now, it's impossible to know just what Moses believed about God. You know, part of the problem is one of the things we know about Moses is he didn't get raised in in a Hebrew home. He was raised in a in an Egyptian home, and so it's very likely that he was exposed to all of the religion and all of the false deities and all of that cultural stuff, and so we have no idea how much God worship was was inferred to him. Now he did spend the last forty years with the with the with the you know with his father in law the the priest of Midian, and so not really sure exactly how god oriented they were either so we don't really know how much how much Moses knew but he's learned he's going to learn a lot so you know so so based on this we believe that his father knew god and it's not clear how much influence amram would have had on him because he didn't grow up in his home um and so the egyptian worship man they worship all kinds of gods you know if you study the egyptian um a pantheon. There's just tons of them. Osiris and Ra and blah, blah, blah. You know, Mickey Mouse. I don't, I don't know which ones there were. There was a lot of them. But he seems to know enough to respond in the right way. When God says, you know, I am the God of, he, he falls on his face before um, God. He hid his face. For he was afraid to look upon God. He, he he sensed that this was, this was unusual, and that that there should be a sense of fear within him to look upon this person, this this being. And so you know, even though the burning bush was the only manifestation that he had, he knew enough to be afraid to look upon him. And that that's a powerful thing. And that's the right response, and we should we should have this reverent fear of God. And 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 I think sometimes we we kind of get confused here because, you know, and, and Pastor Randy talks about this a fair amount. As Christians we ought to be the most joyous people on earth. We are saved. We are going to heaven to spend heaven in heaven for eternity with Jesus, and so there should be some joy that's attached to that. But when we come to worship, that joy also needs to be mixed with reverence. We are we are we are lifting our heart and our voices and our you know there are all these activities are directed toward God, and we got to be careful not to treat them um, too commonly, too flippantly. So finding that balance between joy and reverence is one of the things that we, you know, we, we kind of you know, deal with. You know, let's not treat the things of God as common. We need to treat them with reverence and holiness. Moses knew that, that he was in the presence of a holy God, and he knew he wasn't holy. You know, what, what do we know for certain about, about Moses? He was a murderer. He murdered an Egyptian. and we know we don't have no idea what else he was but but he knew that there there was something okay I need to be careful this is the, I'm in the presence of a holy god and i'm not holy listen we need to understand something God's holiness will consume unholiness unholiness in the presence of God will be consumed as with as if by fire in the book of hebrews though we are encouraged to enter god's presence right hebrews four sixteen. let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need now what we do know is we can't do that based on our own righteousness our own holiness right that, okay, we know that, okay, I, I don't have any, that if I were to go into God's presence based upon my righteousness, upon my holiness, he would have to consume me. That would be the only, only right response. But we also know in Col- in 1 Corinthians one thirty says this, You are in Christ Jesus who became for us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When we receive Christ as our Savior, he imputes or credits to our account his righteousness. So though I have no righteousness, when I go into God's presence as a believer, as a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, God looks upon me and sees the righteousness of Christ, as though it covers me. In Colossians 1, 21, 22, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, it's, it, which yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and abro- above reproach in his sight. You catch that? That, that, you, that he could present you holy, blameless and above reproach in his sight now now even though you're saved you're still not holy that holiness is imputed to us god can look upon us and not judge us because christ took all of the reasons why god would judge us took them to the cross and imputed to us god's Righteousness, his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. And that's why Jesus can say to us that he is the only way to the Father. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through, the, through me, he says. So only through, lot, only through Christ can we be holy enough to enter into God's presence. But once we're saved, now we can go boldly into his presence, which means that we can go with absolute confidence. Knowing that because we are covered in the righteous Christ, I can go into the presence of God and he will not reject me. He will not judge me. He will not, you know, consume me with the fire, you know, flame coming out of his mouth. He's just going to accept me because I have the righteousness of Christ. That's a glorious thing. Now, that doesn't mean we come pridefully or or arrogantly, but we come with confidence. But we should also do as Moses did and remove the sandals from our feet, which is saying that we ought to deal with whatever sin there might be in our lives. If there's sin in our lives, we shouldn't be running into God's presence because, you know, He's gonna He's gonna want to deal with that. We ought to deal with that first. We ought to we ought to search our hearts. If there's something that needs to be repented of, we need to repent of it. We need to get our hearts right. And then we also He says, um, you know, what Moses did is he hid his face. You know, we do the same thing. The idea of humbling ourselves before God, the idea that we go to God confidently, but not with pride and arrogance. So there has, has to be an element of reverence and awe and worship of God. And we can do that for any reason. And so as Moses is standing there with his face hidden and his feet bare, the Lord begins to reveal to him why he is talking to him. And it's in that state that Moses is repa- prepared to hear from God. And that's a great message for all of us. If you want to hear from God, you know, there's the same kind of a thing. We need to be saved. We need to know the rights of Christ. We need to have our our feet, you know, spiritually bare, meaning we're dealing with every sins in our life. And we ought to have our face hidden in, in essence, humbling ourselves before God if you do that then then you are prepared to hear from God and we ought to we ought to have that attitude when we're going are we repenting are we seeking God with a humble heart are we are we are we you know do we care about the things that God cares about and those sorts of things let's keep on verse 7 a little bit longer and then we'll stop for the night Verse seven, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing in milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Now, that's a repeat of what he said earlier at the, at the end of chapter two. But now we get a glimpse of what God is intending to do with Moses. He intends to deliver his people and to keep his promise to Abraham to deliver them to the promised land. And so they're, they're, he said, I'm going to do it. I, I have come down to deliver them. And God is going to use Moses, but it is God who will do the delivering. And this is how God works. God works this way. He's going to do a work, but he's going to include people. But it's God doing the work. You know, and so, you know, it's it's if you've ever used tools, anybody ever used tools? Okay, yeah, everybody's used some kind of a tool. You know, it, you know, the tool is part of the work, but it's not doing the work. You know, that the you are driving, you are controlling, you are navigating, you are turning, you are whatever you're doing with your tool. It's you that it's doing. It's the same thing. God uses people. We're, we're tools in his hands. Um, he, you know, hopefully he, does, he treats them better than we probably treat our tools. But anyways, you know, we're tools in his hand, and, 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 but we're, we're a part of it. And he chooses to do it that way. Just the same, you know, if Dave is working on a car, he's not going to use his bare hands to to do the work on that car. There's only so much that he will be able to do that way. He needs the tools to accomplish the work. Well, God doesn't need the tools. He just chooses to use them. And that's just the way that he operates. So people are in in bondage. They've been in bondage in Egypt for a while. And, And this... He's going to deliver them, and and he's going to come back again. God's going to come back again about 1,400 years later um, to deliver people from bondage again. Um, And instead of of coming himself, as he does here in the burning bush, he's going to send his son. John 3.16, we know the verse well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Instead of being in bondage to the Egyptians, Jesus came to deliver us out of bondage to sin. And because of what he did, because of our faith in him, we are no longer slaves of sin. Doesn't mean sin doesn't touch us, doesn't mean sin doesn't tempt us, doesn't mean that we don't get tangled up in sin, but we're no longer in bondage to it. And we should all say hallelujah for that. Hallelujah. And and just like Moses, we have we have... We have been invited to play a role in delivering others from that bondage. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So it's still God who does the delivering, but we as the people of God, we get to play a part in that. And that is a glorious thing to understand how how precious that is. If you have the privilege at some point of leading somebody to Christ, you have changed someone's eternity. And one of the one of the really amazing things about that is you have no idea what the eternal fruit of that is going to be. You could, you, if you have the privilege of leading one person to Christ you have no idea what they're going to do they may go lead millions to Christ and you know what, you played a role in that you played a part in that and that is a beautiful, beautiful thing um, it's an eternal privilege to do that you, know, you ever had somebody you tell somebody something and, and, they, and they respond why are you telling me this um, um, I go through that every day <clears throat> Kelly tells me things like and I, I think to myself why are you telling me this Moses doesn't understand yet what's going on you know okay so so okay the so, so the people are in Israel and they're having a hard time uh, okay so what w- what do you want me to do about it I think you know why are you telling me this God you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna look at God's call upon oh, we're probably going to stop here actually unless you guys want me to keep going for a little bit longer okay we'll stop that was an unenthusiastic silence so we're going to stop right here wow i got enough notes to go for another hour so just know that, that no we're not going to do that alright so we're going we're to pray and then we'll call it a night is that okay Heavenly Father, we do thank you for um, this time and this place. And Lord, I, I thank you, Lord, as we look at, at this encounter, this radical encounter that Moses has with the living God. Lord, I pray for each of us that you would, you would stir within us a, a deep, deep desire to have an encounter with you. And while we are unlikely to have a burning bush kind of an experience, Lord, you show up in the mundane things of life. You show up when when our hearts are open to hearing from you, when our when our feet are spiritually clean through repentance, when our hearts are humbled before you because we love adore and worship you, and we ask Lord God that you would you would get us all to that place where we would where we would have that encounter with you an encounter maybe that might change our lives forever and and lord i know that for me personally i've I've had a couple of those encounters and not burning bushes not not any you know big miraculous thing but moments when i knew i was hearing your voice calling me um out somewhere and so I thank you, Lord God. I know you still do it. And so I pray it for your people, whether they're here in person or watching online. I pray, Lord, that you would that you would show up. And Holy Spirit, I pray for each of them that you would help them to get ready for that. We love you. We praise you. We lift this night up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. God bless you all. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our freedom to worship God in the book of Exodus. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there's anything we can do to help you with that, please don't hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to connect with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying with you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951 419 5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.